Thank you. It's great to be with you again this morning. It's been, what, maybe a year and a half since you uh, had me speak some time ago. I think Joe was, Pastor Joe was doing a sabbatical for a time, and I had an opportunity to be with you for several sessions. This morning, I'm not going to speak a lot about the ministry, but going to hopefully get into worshiping over the Word of God with you. And if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Uh, going to speak about the subject of love this morning. Joe and I, on a trip some time ago, were in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, on that trip, we uh, got with a group. And I think it was my third trip there. Uh, half the pastors weren't there. And the pastors who showed up weren't prepared. And I had to... Uh, think through that. Now, I'm a strategic thinker. I'm not so much a relational thinker. I have to work on that. And I thought, okay, strategically, we have to make a decision about this training, but also relationally, how do I keep helping them? The strategic decision was to tell them, you're not sustaining a Pathways training, and therefore, this training is over. We go nine times. We'd been three, and I had to cancel the training. But relationally, we had to think through, how do we love these people? And to keep communication going, and lo and behold, your pastor went back there <laughs> to help them some more. And that was part of the relationship of working with the believers in Kinshasa, Democratic Republic of Congo. So we think strategically about mission, ministry, our lives. We also think relationally. How does love fit in to mission, to purpose, to everything that we are? What's the mark of the believer? How should people know that we're believers? By our love. That's what the Bible says. And so love is central to all we are, who we are as a people, and what we do. Last summer, I had an appointment in Bluffton, Ohio, with four pastors to tell them about pathways. So I jumped in the car with another guy, drove 757 miles round trip one day, uh, got there for a lunch meeting, and the main pastor who wanted us to be there and speak didn't make the meeting. And so I explained it to three other pastors got in the car and drove home, 757 miles round trip. And on the way home, I was thinking, okay, strategically, I know how to think about this. But how do I love these people? How do I love these pastors? And keep the door open for more help and more training. I have got to learn to think that way. I'm okay with making strategic decisions. It's the love part that gives me problems. <laughs> and actually, I was, uh, I'm helping to start a new church in Sterling, Illinois, right now. Moved to Dixon, not thinking I was going to be doing that, but some believers in the free church there helped, said, you know, anyway, I got suckered into helping to start a new church, okay? <laughs> and I'm doing that again, and I'm not the pastor. But... Uh, 
uh, a couple of believers wanted to use a tool to help reach out to people they knew. And, and uh, I had used a tool in Sycamore, Illinois, called, uh, uh, there it goes, you know, Christianity Explored. It's a 15-minute video series. It comes out of All Souls Church in London, England. goes to the Gospel of Mark in eight weeks. You watch the video, and it gives you a basis for discussion then and walking people through the Gospel of Mark. And we saw some success with that. So these two couples got together. They planned them separately, uh, prayed, prayed, and prayed, and invited people, started the groups, and they both collapsed. Didn't work. I thought, well, you know, they tried. Then they did the unique thing. They kept praying. Two and a half months later, they restarted their groups. And they worked, finished their groups, and started small groups with these couples that are unchurched. Now, I think the difference there was love. They loved them enough to give it a second chance. Strategically, it didn't work, walk away, do something else, right? But they loved them enough to try it again. Love makes a difference in our mission. It makes a difference in how we live and who we are. Now, I gave a title of this sermon. Let, let me give you a little test here, okay? If you don't do well at this, it probably is a good thing. <laughs> uh, I called this sermon, What's Love Got to Do With It? Do you remember where that title might have come from? I can't believe it. Really? You remember that? I thought I might have stumped some of you. But uh, yeah, it came from Tina Turner's song, What's Love Got to Do With It? I'm thinking that was like early 1990s. This is a ways back. I would hear that on the radio, and I kind of liked that song. I would hear it and think, I like, that. I like the rhythm in it. And, uh, well, then, you know, you, you hear it a couple of times. You start thinking, what, what's they, what are they really saying in this song? So you turn it up a bit, and I started listening to the words. What's love got to do, got to do with it? What's love but a secondhand emotion? What's love got to do with it? Who needs love when a heart can be broken? It never got better than that. That's the theme of that song. Now, it took me a while to think of this, but I think it was like a lament, like a psalm of lament you'd find in the Psalms. Uh, I think it was a lament that Tina Turner sang because, well, I'm reading into her motive some, but I know that she had a a very difficult marriage, and the guy was beating her to death, and she got away from that, and then she became very successful. I thought, I wonder if, if that song was really Tina Turner's lament. Well, you know, the, there was uh, something up here, uh, uh, Everlasting Reckless Love was that last song. I thought that might be a better sermon title than What's Love Got to Do With It? But anyway, that's where that title came from. And thinking about the subject of love. And I want to go to John 17 with you here. The last part of this prayer. This is Jesus' prayer on his, the final night before the events of the crucifixion and then 
resurrection. Uh, John chapter 17, I'll begin reading with verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you've sent me. I have made known to them your name. I will continue to make it known that the love with which you've loved me may be in them and I in them. And Father, as we continue to worship you in this hour. We, your people, we pray that the light of this text might become clear to us. We pray you might help us to know your intent in these words. We pray that we might understand why Jesus prays this way and what difference it makes to us today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now we immediately see that this is not uh, just a devotional kind of prayer. Uh, it's It's a prayer happening on the last night before Christ's crucifixion. So he's prayed about a number of topics here. Uh, The section really on the upper room starts a couple of chapters before this. He's told them some very important things. And then we have this beautiful and a rather long prayer in John 17. And it can tell us some some of the things that Christ is truly passionate about because he's praying about them. And here at the end of this prayer, he prays about love and his passion for this love. It's a battlefield kind of prayer. Uh, I've read before that in the military, they, they uh, plan things such that they, they need a strategy to how to protect that city or take that ground. And they formulate a, a strategy. And then they, they also, well, they, they strat- the strategy is to take that objective. It might be a city or to defend the city. Then, the strat- then they have tactics where each individual group of soldiers and each soldier knows what his duty is to fulfill the strategy and protect or take that objective. Well, this prayer is a battlefield kind of prayer. We, we know what the objective is. It's clear if we read closely. He says here, verse 23, 
I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. There's the objective. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. The objective is that the world may know the love of God in Christ. The same kind of love that God the Father has for the Son. The strategy is that he tells this to those who are at that Last Supper. And tactically then, so he tells us that he's praying for those who will believe through their word, which is you and me. Tactically, we fit into this prayer in that we will fulfill whether or not the world knows the love of God through Christ. Objective, strategy, and tactic. It's all there in the context of this prayer so that the world may know. And then we carry this objective forward. We find this in other writings of the Bible, particularly the Apostle Paul. We think of 1 Corinthians 13 or 2 Corinthians 5 and these places where he says we're ambassadors for Christ for the love of Christ controls us. If the love of God is in us, then we can be ambassadors for Christ and help the world may know. Now, if we just skim this text 21 through 26, we see there's topics that come to the surface. There in verse 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. There's unity here. There's love there. In 22, we find the glory that you've given me, I have given to them. Well, there's something there we might want to make, take a moment with, which I will in just a second. What's this glory got to do with this? And how is it more than just a nebulous kind of thought about something that's higher than we are? Verse 23, the love is there. I and them, God the Father, you and me, Jesus is saying, I are in them, God the Father, you are in me. Verse 24, there he says it again, the love in the Father and in the Son. Verse 25, that others can know this. It would be a known thing. Verse 26, this love. And how God the Father loves the Son. There's an incredibly deep teaching here about the love of God formulated in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But like a lot of scriptural truths that are deep, it's also clear. I was out in Colorado this summer and fishing for trout, and I, was in a, I saw I was there at a mountain lake. I could look out, seriously, I could look out 30 feet and see the fish in the water. I could look down 20 feet at one part, I could see the fish in the water. They were deep, but it was clear. And I think this teaching on the love that we see here in John 17, it is a deep teaching, but it's also meant to be clear. It's something that we can identify and see. Now, you've probably heard this sound from Pastor uh, Joe, but uh, we tend to preach in one sentence. You know, what's the intent of the text? I'm going to give you that sentence, okay? I'm just going to give it to you in pieces. 
Here's the first part, following Christ. Following Christ comes from the whole context of the book of John. We have a person writing this book, this gospel, who was a disciple named John. And John wrote this so that other people could believe and know Christ like he knew him. And John had a very particular way of speaking about his relationship with Christ in this gospel. He uses the phrase, the disciple that Jesus loved. Instead of putting his own name in the text, he'll say, he does this several times in the book of John, he refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved. He does this in the middle of the book. He does it at the end of the book. And we have to kind of stop and think, well, who is that? Well, it's, he's talking about himself. But isn't that kind of a different way to write about yourself? Yeah, the disciple that Jesus loved did this. Well, and I have to wonder, what did the other disciples think when they read John's gospel? <laughs> well, I don't think there was any jealousy amongst them. I suspect they smiled when they read that. You know, following Christ, John really liked being loved by Jesus Christ. And so he would call, he would say, the disciple that Jesus loved. And that's how he refers to himself in the gospel of John. It's really, there's an amazing freedom in him that he would celebrate the fact that Jesus loved me. And he would say, yeah, I'm the disciple that Jesus loved. There's something really healthy about that. You know, could, could you, could we say, yeah, I'm the guy Jesus really loves. <laughs> and it's not that he doesn't love other people or love you. But you know, I know he really loves me. There's something good in that phrase. There's something healthy about following Christ and being able to say, I know God loves me. You know, I had a guy in my last church who came to Christ. He was from India. He was a medical doctor. His background was Zoroastrianism, which is a great ancient religion. Some people say it's the oldest religion. I don't think it is, but, but uh, it's an ancient religion, and it's very ethical, very, has a very strong ethical system. And he knew another doctor who came to my church who met with a, a Delta pilot for Bible study. And one day that Delta pilot or the uh, other doctor in my church invited this Indian doctor to the Bible study. And he was cordial but didn't accept. And then sometime later came back to him and said, can I come to your Bible study? And he went out and bought a Bible and started coming to this Bible study. They started coming to our church. Every Sunday he'd be in church. And you know, he didn't just carry a Bible, he actually read it. He was studying it. Two and a half years later, the back of the service one day, he said, Pastor Brad, today I took communion. I knew, I knew exactly what that meant. He now counts himself a follower of Jesus Christ. Had a heart attack not long ago. It was this year he had a heart attack. He's retired. 
he was going to Ethiopia to help other pastors, to help pastors. That was his mission in retirement. You know, somewhere along the line, as he read this book, he realized it's absolutely and completely unique. There's nothing in sociology, there's nothing in another religion like what we read in this book. <clears throat> when we read, the same love that the Father has for the Son would be in us, and we would help the world know that. There's nothing else like that in any religion of the world. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, in a loving relationship, communicating that to other people. Hold on, hold on to that thought. I'm going to come back to it in a minute. I got ahead of myself. <laughs> I'm supposed to be talking about context still. We see following Christ here, and, the, and John says, I'm the disciple Jesus loved. If we're going to understand the import of this prayer and apply it to our lives, we need to make sure that we can be like John and say with him, I know that God loves me. And I revel in that love. I'm accepted by him. But there's another thought here that gets introduced that I want to take a moment with. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. What, is the, what in the world is that about? You know, uh, we can think about glory in kind of ethereal ways. Uh, so that we just kind of read it and go right by it. Not sure what it means, so I just won't think about it. <laughs> well, if we go back to John chapter 1, we find that John tells us something about that glory. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt, us, dwelt among us. We beheld his glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, John chapter 1, when the people 2,000 years ago in Israel thought of the glory of God, what did they think of? They thought of the temple. Basically, they thought of the tabernacle. They would go back to the Old Testament, and they had what they termed the Shekinah glory at the temple. If you read your Old Testament, you might remember this, that as they would travel around, they would set up their tent of meeting, their tabernacle, and there dwelt the Shekinah glory. And, you know, the camp might smell like, you know, sheep and camels, and, and do, they did whatever they had to do when they traveled around. But there at the very center of the camp, there was a tabernacle, tabernacle built under God's specifications, and there dwelt the Shekinah glory of God. And now John says in John chapter 1, we got something better than that. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory. There's something better than the Shekinah glory in a tabernacle. The glory of God and Jesus Christ has now entered into the neighborhood, so to speak. It's here amongst us in Christ. So when we think about following Christ here in the context, <clears throat> we would think at least two things that John is telling 
the people. <clears throat> One, <clears throat> that I'm the one that Jesus loved. I'm loved by Christ. And two, I'm beginning to taste and drink and, and know this glory of God through Christ. That's an incredible impetus to follow Christ. You get that in nothing else in life other than in Christ. Following Christ means we can know this love and we can know this glory. Second part of the sentence, following Christ in love. Obviously, we have to think through this love that Jesus is revealing to us here. Now, the uniqueness of this love is that it's the same love that the Father has for the Son. Now, we boy, bless you, thank you. It just all of a sudden went. We have <clears throat> something deep and something clear here. Let's worship for a few minutes over this text and allow the deepness and the clearness of what Jesus says about love to have a chance to penetrate our lives. For what he says here is there's nothing else in the world of religion or ideas like this. <clears throat> we have a Trinitarian basis for love. The love of the Father, the love of the Son, the love of the Holy Spirit. There's a Trinitarian basis for love in the believer's life that we can perceive and get nowhere else. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> it's personal. If we're going to talk about love, we're going to talk about something very personal. Now, <clears throat> I like looking at stars and I, and I enjoy nature. Where I live, I live out in the woods right now, far outside of a city. We don't have any lights. Uh, there's no street lights or anything like that. Uh, you go out on a, a winter evening when there's no clouds, and you look up, and it's startling how bright it is because of the stars. I can see Mars. I can see Venus. I can pick them out, and there's no man-made light that uh, presses that light away. <clears throat> but more startling than that is to know this. Before there was a creation, before there was a material world, there was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God, one essence, and three persons in relationship. God exists in eternity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, one essence in relationship that predates the material world. And I can look at the stars and know, oh yeah, it's pretty majestic. But there's one behind that that's in the eternal relationship. A God who has no sense of need doesn't need anything. He's completely self-sufficient. 
And love is not a manufactured element of creation. Love is not a sociological concept made up by people. One philosopher said, sarcastically, we are descended from the apes, therefore we shall love one another. I mean, yeah, it's sarcastic. It doesn't make any sense. That doesn't give you a basis for love. But there's a God who is in a loving relationship in three persons, one essence, before there's anything in the material world. And he loves, and he comes to earth loving. And in his love, he prays that we would know the same love that he has within himself would be in you. And you would make known to the world. My friend, there's nothing else <clears throat> in the world like that. Conceptually, that is a completely, totally unique thought. God, and John says in his epistle, God is love. He writes more about that love in his epistles. Following Christ in love. And it becomes one of the marks of a believer, we find as we continue to read the Bible. We find the, the, the other apostles, like Paul and others, writing about that love because it's transforming. It's, it changes them. Now, if the disciples would have had, like, interviews to see whether or not they were going to get to be disciples. You know, like, pass the interview and you can come in. You know, yeah, it's comical. Nobody would have made it. Nobody would have gotten in. But instead, Jesus brings this band of ruffians together, like John and eventually Peter and Paul and others, and he changes them. He transforms them. So that then they are willing to go out and die for what they believe in Christ. And John eventually, we believe, ends up on a, on a, a very rugged island in exile. He's known the other disciples and have, have been martyred for the faith. And he's writing gospel. He's writing the book of Revelation. And he's trying to the, to the end of his life. For the world to know, yeah, Jesus loved me. And he wants to love you too. You can know that love of God and Christ. So we find this Trinitarian basis in John 17 when he says, Father, verse, four, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. <laughs> Why does he pray that? Because it's true. And Christ is right now celebrating that in his prayer. He's celebrating that love and saying he wants us to know the glory. He wants us to know that love like he knows it. Now, now, go to bed thinking about that one night. Jesus wants 
me wants you to be as clear on the love God has for you, me, as he is clear about the love of God for himself. <laughs> That's worth celebrating. That's worth considering and thinking about. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship before time begins, before there's anything material. And now God wants you to know that love as well. And then the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are working together for the world to know. And so we see that at the very beginning of Christ's ministry where uh, Jesus gets baptized and the Father says, this is my son. And the Spirit comes like a dove upon him. And they're all three there at the baptism, kicking off this ministry that the world may know of the love of God in Christ and that it's real and it's there for us. Follow, following Jesus in love, third part of the sentence, for the sake of the world. It has a purpose. It has an objective in this text so that the world may know. And whether they're in the Congo or they're in Chillicothe, that's the world. That the whole world would know about this love. You know, love, it gives you wings and it gives you, gives you roots. Love reassures us. It strengthens us. It feeds you in the storm. It gives you help when the improbables and the impossibles of life come upon us. And this band that follows Jesus will know incredible suffering. I mean, they're about to die for what they believe. And yet they would not quit because they knew I'm a disciple that Jesus loves. So I'm going to go with this to the end. He changes them. He transforms them. I am the one that Jesus loves. And it supports them during the floods and the winds of life. You know, I've often thought of how <clears throat> our culture uh, tends to keep, you know, the grim reaper away. You know, death. Uh, we don't see death. I mean, I think Joe saw this when we were in the Congo. I don't know exactly what's going on when they do this, but we drove through a stoplight and, uh, or some kind of traffic area, and uh, there was a corpse propped up against the light. And it was all uh, covered with white. I thought, well, they're not keeping the Grim Reaper away. <laughs> you drive through the stop sign and there's a dead body there. You know, in our culture, you just never see dead bodies. Or you see a dead body after it's been prepared to be seen. And I'm not against all that. I'm just saying we do what we can to keep the Grim Reaper away and not look. But we can't. And some point it hits. You know, hit my family last Christmas Eve. My dad died. I thought, okay. Just got out of church service, turned on my phone. There's a message from my mom. You know, dad, I just saw him yesterday, but now he's dead. 
And you have to think through, okay, what is life? What is death? What does my life mean? What's love got to do with it? How do I love in this world where people I care about die? People experience all other kinds of things in life. Sometimes they experience great loss. Sometimes they do evil things. How do I love? And not just strategically, how do I love? But how do I care for them? There are people all around us who need love. They need the love of God. They're likely not to come to church to get it. Uh, They're likely not to wake up one morning and say, I think I'll go to church and see if I can figure out the love of God. (laughs) Maybe they did that at some point, but in our culture, generally people don't do that. So we need to be working on, how do I love the people around me? How do I love my neighbor? How do I show them love? How do I help that person understand that God cares about them? And to pray about that with friends and to work on it in daily life. You know, one of the people who taught me the most about this years ago, many years ago now, remember Corey Tenboon? Some of you remember Corey. That was a you know, 60s, 70s kind of thing for the most part because she died. She was older back then. But, you know, she had lived through uh, World War II. She had been in a concentration camp because her family had helped uh, Jews escape. And her, I think her sister died there. And the story goes that she's telling that she's in Germany and she was a great teacher had a great voice for the love of God. She was, a good, she was an evangelist. And she said she's speaking to this group in Germany and she recognizes a prison guard that was in the concentration camp where she had been. <laughs> okay. Thank you, God. There's a test. How are you going to love this person? How are you going to care about that person who was evil and evil towards you and your sister? And she talks then about cashing the check of Romans 5.5. I thought this was a great lesson. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given us. Romans chapter 5.5. God has poured out his love to us in our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given to us. It's a God thing to love your neighbor. It's not meant to be done in your power. It's meant to be done in God's power. You know, how do a couple of couples with little kids and all the rest invite people to their home to watch a 15-minute video and talk through the gospel of Mark It totally fails. It collapses. Nobody's coming. And they pick it all up again, and they did it a second time, and it worked. I thought, there's the love of God. I'm almost, I'm pretty, I'm 95% certain I would have walked away at that moment. (laughs) I said, okay, didn't work. Go on to the next thing. 
and yet they loved him to try it again. And those people are in Bible study, learning of the love of God in their hearts. You know, there's something else about loving people in our culture. There is no center and there's no transcendence. Let me explain what I mean by that. You come to worship because there's some sense of transcendence in your life. You know that over and above everything I see, God is real. There's a God. And I can drink in his glory and worship him. What if you didn't have that? Well, by and large, the people around you don't have it. They don't have that sense of transcendence. You think through it all the time because it's just part of your form now. You formed your life thinking church and worship and the Bible's true and Christ is real. And so you're, you're processing it all through the days and months and years now. What if you didn't have that? And there's a transcendence in your life that calls you constantly to worship, to declare the glory of God, and it holds you morally. It has moral connotations in your life because you believe that there's an authority over you, right? That's part of transcendence. But also, it gives you a center. And I think that centers in the love of God. And the people around you don't have that either. It's this new church we're trying to get formed, and we've been praying for people that we just encounter in daily life. And so uh, some of the people are medical people, and so... We're praying for other uh, nurses and other people, and and uh, some of the guy, one of the, some of the guys work in this uh, factory, and so t- we're praying for these guys, and we we find that that we're we are praying for people who don't have a center, and they don't have transcendence. How can we love them and help them? And it will only come through repeated exposure to talking to them again and again in gracious and loving ways, making invitations, and helping praying them into the love of God. You know, you can think about that in your own experience of life as well. What can I do to make... This is what I've started doing. Because I I have trouble with this. I've got to train myself to think about love. Monday is my, my morning to pray about love. And that's just weekly. I need to think about my, my week and what does love have to do with it? And how will I display and know that love in my life and help other people find it too? Let's pray, pray as we work towards <clears throat> wrapping up our worship this morning. <clears throat> Lord, Lord Jesus, we've seen you say here, I do not ask for those, for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word. And we know that that was us. 
You were praying for us at that moment. And we thank you for your prayers. We thank you for your, care, your compassion, your concern, your love for us. We pray that we can, with a smile on our lips, say with the Apostle John, I'm a disciple that Jesus loves. And we can know that with a sincerity and a deep sense of, of truthfulness. And as we taste and drink of that love and that glory, that we can be more loving, a loving follower of Jesus Christ. And we pray that our church would be known that way, that people would know as they are into a relationship with us. These are people who love. And that would be a true mark of our hope and our spirit and our life and our church. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.